0: All right, all right. Welcome to the Cavus Ships Podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the
1: day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, the sinking of Russia's biggest warship in the Black Sea is one of the most significant naval events of the past 40 years. With naval historian Dr. Phil Weir, we'll dive into some of the naval lessons learned so far in this brutal war and hark back to the Falklands War of 1982, where new and old weapons took a terrible toll on ships and lives. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world.
0: The Russian missile cruiser Moskva, flagship of the Russian Navy's Black Sea Fleet, burned and sank April 14th. A Pentagon source told media April 15th that the ship was hit by two Ukrainian-fired Neptune surface-to-surface missiles on April 13th while the Moskva was operating about 60 nautical miles south of Odessa. Significant fires then broke out. Russian media said the fire was in an ammunition area, but did not state the cause. The ship apparently was at first abandoned, but then taken under tow, and according to Russian media, sank in heavy seas on April 14th. The Ukrainian government said the sinking was the result of an attack by Neptune missiles, fired at the Moskva, while the Russians were distracted by Ukrainian TB2 aerial drone. There are no estimates as to how many Russian sailors died in the attack and sinking, or how many survived, although Russian media reported the ship's commanding officer died on the ship. The Moskva was the largest and most powerful surface warship in the Russian Navy's Black Sea Fleet. Two ships of the same type are positioned in the Mediterranean Sea.
1: The Chinese Navy and Air Force on April 15th staged a large series of what China called Joint Combat Readiness Alert Patrols, in the waters and aerospace surrounding Taiwan. Forces included destroyers, frigates, maritime assault forces, bombers, and fighter jets. The patrol seemed to be timed to the visit to Taiwan by a group of U.S. lawmakers.
0: The U.S. Navy for the first time used an all-electric high-energy laser weapon to defeat an aerial target representing a subsonic cruise missile in flight. The February test, revealed on April 13th, used a Lockheed Martin-built layered laser defense, or LLD, weapon to track or shoot down an array of targets, including unmanned fixed-wing aerial vehicles, quadcopters, and high-speed drones representing subsonic cruise missiles. The LLD, sponsored by the U.S. Navy's Office of Naval Research, is a demonstration system not intended to be fielded as a weapon.
1: The museum ship, the Sullivans, began taking on water during the evening of April 13th at the Buffalo Naval Park in Buffalo, New York, and by the next day, the ship was partially sunk. Engineers were pumping water out of the ship at a slightly higher rate than water was coming in, so as we record this podcast, the ship seemed stabilized, long-needed repairs to the World War II Fletcher-class destroyer named for the famous Fighting Sullivan brothers, ironically, had just begun when the leak occurred. And that's a look at some of the week's naval news.
0: So as we said, perhaps the leading naval news story of the week was the sinking of the Russian missile cruiser Moskva. Um, a number of developments have been taking place in the Ukrainian war, Ukraine-Russian war, which are going to be analyzed and studied by militaries all over the world, and, and, and including navies and what went wrong, what went right, what what are the lessons learned. To help us um, look at this issue, we are lucky today to have uh, Dr. Philip Weir, a naval historian, uh, widely read, widely written, and a man very grounded in in, in the present and in the past. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Weir. Thanks, Chris, and and Chris as well. Glad to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you, and one of the issues that is is beginning to emerge – As as this war is analyzed and people take lessons learned, we're hearkening back to 40 years ago, 40 years ago, exactly this time of year, April and May 1982, when the British military traveled almost halfway down the world, down to the Falkland Islands to retake the Falklands. And that was a vicious war that uh, surprised a lot of people. A lot of people did not see that coming, but from the... Opening salvo, if you will, when the uh, submarine Conqueror sank the Argentine cruiser General Belgrano, torpedoed and sunk. Um, first time since World War II a major warship had been torpedoed and sunk. Um, people were were pretty darn surprised. Just a few days later, the Argentines hit the um, British destroyer Sheffield with exocets, a modern warship, you know, in, in a in a combat area that theoretically was all set and ready. For for uh, to defend against threats, and yet they were hit and they were lost. So, from your, doctor, we're from just so far we're fifty-one days in this Russian-Ukraine war. What are your some of your, some of your impressions from a naval point of view of uh, of what we're seeing? Well, the, the naval
2: war for me has you know, obviously been uh, been really quite interesting uh, from a number of aspects. It's it's not one that's featured all that heavily in a lot of reports I mean um, just a couple of days ago um, I think USNI news were, were reporting John Kirby uh, saying he didn't have much of a much of a read on naval activity um, in the, <clears throat> in the war at that point which is is kind of curious because there's actually been quite a lot of naval activity even before you you reach um, the the sinking of the Moskva, which is Obviously, the the big public event, the one that that everyone is concentrating on and uh, and looking at, but it has been um, it's it, it's been a fairly eventful um, naval war, and perhaps surprisingly, although admittedly it's a low bar at this point given everything else they've done, it seems mostly to have actually been one of the more successful of the the Russian campaigns. Which I think would probably come as something of a surprise to most people, but I mean, the the way it really sort of went was that first couple of hours of the the war, famously, of course, the, the Moskva um, goes across to, to Snake Island with uh, with a couple of other warships, and they bombard the place and take prisoner of the uh, the Ukrainian garrison there. Um, after a, a certain now famous radio exchange, um, which you know, made, uh, made some fairly hefty headlines at the time. But strategically, it was a really quite important point. Um, and the reason for that is that rather small island, um, as well as being a, a, an interesting point for uh, for maritime claims, um, because it's very, actually very close to the, uh, the Ukrainian uh, border with Romania um, as much as anything else. But it sits right at the, the head of the shipping channel up towards Odessa. You control that and you can see what's coming, what's going, and you can start enforcing a blockade. And Russia has done that extremely successfully from pretty much the off. Nothing has come in and nothing has gone out of Ukrainian ports. They've they've, they've pretty much sealed it off, I and mean, it's it's one of the sort of um, fallacies that have been floating around that uh, that Russia needs to take Odessa from the land side to to be able to cut off uh, the Black Sea. That's that's not true. They've already done it, um, and that's that's huge economically for for Ukraine. I mean, a couple of days ago, the World Bank. Uh, published a report suggesting that the Ukrainian economy is likely to contract by about forty-five percent this year. Uh, now, not all of that's going to be, <clears throat> not all of that's going to be the blockade. There's obviously uh, key points around the the damage the war's doing um, to factories, farms, and so forth. There's also the, the mobilization of the, the population, a lot of the working age population of the military, and of course the, the massive displacement uh, of others, which is, is obviously killing uh, killing economic activity. But the blockade is a, is a huge part of that. I mean, Ukraine is um, a fairly serious industrial exporter. It, it exports um, aero engines to, uh, you know, around the world. It, you know, um it exports marine engines to uh, and ships to india and uh, and various other places but yeah crucially is, is is one of the world's great bread baskets it's a huge agricultural uh, exporter um something about like fourth or fifth um in the world in terms of of grain and wheat and so forth um and that's that's cut off, and that has huge secondary effects down the line because they supply an awful lot of the, the Middle East and North Africa with their food, and we already know from news reports that uh, that places like Lebanon are on the brink, and food prices are are at a, a level last seen just leading up to the Arab Spring. So this is this is major um, as a um, as a as a move, and and that's. Yeah, very much part of the the naval war.
1: Does the sinking of the Moskva, does does it change the balance of power in um, the situation in the Black Sea that you just talked about? Um, I, I think initially folks that are not as well... Uh, informed uh, on naval activities and specifically on naval activities in the black sea thought maybe it was would be just a moral victory or you know or a pr bungle for the russians but does it from a practical standpoint does it help um you know release some of the i i guess the death grip that the russians have on uh on ukrainian shipping short answer no um yeah,
2: um, Rob Lee, the uh, the the analyst, um, posted uh, it was it last night, I think, uh, on on social media about this, and his, his replies were a complete bin fire <laughs> of people saying, "Oh God, we have, you know, of course it's a huge thing." I don't get me wrong. The sinking of the Moskva is is from a morale perspective um, and the you know, symbolic perspective. It, it's huge. This is you know, one of uh, one of Russia's five six uh, depending on how you count the Nakimov um, biggest surface warships it's named for the the Russian capital it's, this is it's the flagship of the Black Sea fleet for heaven's sake this is a huge moral loss but the bottom line is the Black Sea is still closed to um, any shipping going in and out of uh, a uh out of ukrainian ports and i don't see that changing pretty much at all actually i don't think there's a military way in which the uh in which the ukrainians without outside interference can break that blockade
0: so the pentagon is also reporting that following this following the fire that broke out on the ship and again there's no independent confirmation of what caused the fire that it- apparently eventually sank the ship. Uh, but following that, the other Russian warships in the area all pulled back significantly away from the Ukrainian coast, which would indicate it was a Ukrainian attack. By the way, the, the, most, the most prevalent theories seemed to be that there was a Ukrainian Neptune surface-to-surface missile that hit the ship, but the ship was also distracted, possibly, And again, details all to be confirmed, you know, who knows, but it's, it seems that it was distracted, that that there was a pretty sophisticated attack. Um, The Ukrainians used a TB2 um, unmanned aerial drone to approach the ship It attracted the Russians' attention. They were watching that. They weren't watching 360 and the the Neptune came in somewhere else. That ship certainly has defensive systems that could have been employed here and may may well have defeated that missile, but um, they weren't. For some reason, they didn't use them, but um, it does seem to have been effective in pushing back the Russian Navy from the coast. And the the primary the primary effect that Navy's been having, aside from the blockade, has been shore bombardment. They've been shooting caliber missiles, a lot of missiles coming from the sea uh, into Ukraine, and maybe this this complicates their situation on that it also sort of you know this is no insignificant ship there are only three of these in service were and all three had significant positions one was in, one was the flagship of the black sea fleet another one was uh in, was the um, in the pacific fleet and then and the third was in the northern fleet the other two ships have were all all three ships were moved into position prior to the start of this war prior, prior to the invasion um, apparently to threaten American aircraft carriers should nor NATO aircraft carriers, should they get within striking range. And both of the cruisers and in the, in the uh, Mediterranean have certainly been in that sort of position. They've been positioned to do that. Um, so these are, these are, these are major assets. They're old. They date from the early eighties. Um, uh, I was on the Marshal Lustinov. I, I toured that ship when we was in Norfolk in 1989, but, um, They've been around for a while, but these, these are key assets to the Russian Navy. They're not, they're not insignificant. Um, it also strikes me that this is, this is sort of, they're echoes of the sinking in 1982 of the General Belgrano, the Argentine cruiser, which was a large warship, one of the largest warships in the Argentine Navy, former US Navy light cruiser, and was torpedoed, and their uh, photographs were taken by survivors of the ship sinking that made cover uh, the, the covers of magazines and newspapers all over the world. One of the iconic issues, histori- uh, photos, images of the war. Do you, do you, do you see linkages there? Um, Phil, is there, you know, how would you, how would you compare some of the lessons learned from the Falklands to me, may- what we might be seeing today?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, in terms of, I mean, there are obvious parallels um, in, um, as you say, one of the largest uh, warships in a in a navy going down, um, you know, in moral terms and uh, and so forth. In terms of the reaction, I think that remains to be seen. Um, yes, Russian navy um, warships have been pulled back from the Ukrainian coast, but in terms of the Argentine reaction to the sinking of the Belgrano, they, they pulled back to port and never really left again. Um, so I don't think you'll see that level of reaction from uh, from the Russian Navy in terms of, of just sort of completely pulling out of it. Um, you know, in terms of the, the sort of blockade bit, um, even if they were absolutely terrified of the the... Neptunes to the point that they, they wouldn't want to leave port again. But the surface ships they do still have submarines with which they can, uh, you know, deliver mines and so forth and uh, keep a blockade in place anyway. So as I said, I don't think the naval balance has has particularly changed. Um, in in the case of the in the case of the Belgrano. Yeah, the Argentine navy was facing a, a far more serious actual naval opponent than uh, than, than Russia seems to be at, uh, at this point in in terms of brute power. In terms of the circumstances, there there are some interesting parallels, particularly with the the loss of HMS Sheffield, the the sort of distraction. Um, although I think any distraction with HMS Sheffield seemed to be with their own communications rather than. Um, any tactical, serious tactical ploy by the uh, by the Argentine Air Force, uh, but yeah, you know, again, um, hit by a, a missile, abandoned, burns, gets uh, sunk under, sinks under tow uh, in a storm. There, there are certainly a number of uh, you know, similarities in in the immediate circumstances uh, with regard to loss, and I, I don't doubt. Assuming the, the, the Russians are sort of serious about all of this, uh, there should be a, an awful lot of questions that, uh, that the Russian Navy should be asking itself about how this happened, in much the same way as the, the, the Royal Navy ended up asking itself a lot of very serious questions about missile defense, uh, about damage control, and, and the like in the, in the aftermath of the loss of the Sheffield.
1: There are obviously lessons that the Russian Navy will have to uh, consider, uh, as you just discussed. Um, but there are also lessons, I think, for um, navies of the world to uh, to take away from this. One may be combat at sea is now a new reality, right? I mean, as, as you and Chris both discussed, I mean, we haven't seen something like this really since 1982. Um, from your standpoint, what are the you know, early lessons either fr- uh, from this or from other things that you've uh, you've followed in the Black Sea that that you know the United States, UK, France, and and the Western navies need to be paying attention to right right now um, as they deal with Russia in the future, as they deal with China. I mean, you, you know, what what can people pull from this? I, I
2: think there's there's quite a lot to be pulled from this um, already. I've already mentioned the, the blockade. In terms of, I, I sort of mentioned the, the naval success um, that the Russians had had. I mean, the, the two absolute basics, um, in terms of disrupting the other guys' trade and protecting your own, the Russian Black Sea Fleet has, has largely done successfully. So, so I already mentioned the blockade, but. Um, Within, I think it was about two weeks. Um, Lloyd's of registering that uh, the Russian commercial shipping had restarted in the in the Azov Sea from uh, Rostov um, and Azov through the the Kerch Strait. That seems to be escorted in convoys. Um, AIS is off. You you can't actually you can see the the ships sort of start and you can see them finish, but you don't actually see them make the trip. Um, interestingly, they. Uh, the Russians apparently fired on a on a Turkish bulker uh, a couple of days ago um, whilst uh, one that they were actually convoying up, uh, a grain bulker, of course, because um, it's worth pointing out, um, just to digress, the uh, that you know, Russia is the other one of the other great uh, bread baskets of the world, and as uh, uh, its grain trade is, is probably what's keeping chunks of the Middle East and North Africa afloat at the moment, which could be politically awkward. Yeah, they've they've managed to to defend their own trade um, so far in in and out of the uh, of the Azov Sea. I, I suspect they had to. The reason it was closed, probably a mine sweeping operation, um, would be my guess. Uh, we know from at least I think twenty sixteen there there's been sort of videos of the uh, the, the Ukrainians mining um, the, the seas off Mariupol um for obvious reasons in the in the midst of the uh, the war that, uh, they already had going on so um yeah they they successfully did that what they haven't done is been able to exploit it this uh, this sort of you know broadly sea control that they've got um they've not been able to put in a, a an amphibious attack um you know, part of that is is a capacity thing they they yeah, you know, they've got enough to put a brigade ashore, I think, um, but not really much uh, more than that. This is this this is a sort of force that you put you know, a few hours up the road from your main advance, just to to sort of bounce around some uh, some defences and uh, you know, envelop somewhere that's slightly tricky. It's not you know, we're not talking, uh, you know day or operation galvanic or something like that this is you know this is not a mass divisional landing stuff and they've, they've not really been able to use it they, the um the black sea coast indeed the azov isn't desperately conducive to it um but beyond that they've not really been able to utilize their their sea and maritime transport either um i mean it we, I think, a lot of us all saw the the other big naval loss they had um, the uh, supply ship, the amphibious ship, sorry, Saratov that got hit and blown up in uh, in Berdyansk. And that was that was an interesting one. because that's that's kind of engineering and port opening stuff, which the Russians just don't seem to have done terribly well slash at all. Um, you know, they took Berdyansk fairly early on. Um, now, it's worth saying that uh, a couple of days before that, there was video posted, I think, by by the Ukrainians saying, look what the terrible Russians are doing. Some demolition charges go up in the uh, in, in the port area, um, which is plainly the Ukrainians just blowing up the, um, the port facilities. Why? Well, you know, a couple of weeks later, the, the Russians demonstrate that when... The amphibious ships start coming in, and um, you know, if they'd left them the uh, the port intact, you'd have you know, thousands upon thousands of tons of of you know stalls and and uh, you know thousands of men coming in. Oh, Russian media! an open media was port. on the
0: pier, showing that ship unloading. Yeah, look, look at all this stuff. So yeah, that, that that didn't end too well. Now they uh, have been, I mean, they they've done the blockade, but they certainly have not demonstrated. Um, an efficacy at amphibious warfare uh, no. certainly 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 incapable of approaching a contested coast they've stayed back um they haven't done it and uh, even their resupply efforts they've had trouble with so and, and this is in a pretty closed sea when they have assets very close by obviously crimea and everywhere else they're not they're not at the at the long end of a tether here um we could we we the, these issues in ukraine will be studied for weeks and months and years, and there'll be plenty more to talk about as we go on. Um, Right now, I'd like to actually break break and go to a completely different topic, Um, not necessarily the present, but relics of the past. Um, As we talk, um, the World War II Fletcher-class destroyer, the Sullivans, um, has suffered a pretty serious accident um up in buffalo new york this is a very well-known ship um and is part of the buffalo naval park up there but they also have the large lake cruiser um, little rock uh submarine p- a uh, patrol boat a whole bunch of stuff up there the ship um took on water and has partially sunk pier side it's not clear at, as we talk right now this is an ongoing situation so it's not clear how far it will go it seems to be stabilized for the moment but it is when you when you look at these museum ships it's a reminder that just because a ship has been saved has found a home is is open as a museum ship is nominally preserved these are these these things have a lifespan of their own and it doesn't mean they're there forever they can go away they um the uh Patriots Point Museum and uh, outside of Charleston in South Carolina recently announced they were going to scrap their their submarine. It was in it was in terrible condition and not worth repairing. Out in San Diego, they had a Russian submarine that uh, had deteriorated that was just towed out to be scrapped in uh, Mexico. The battleship Texas in Texas is now in a dry dock, but its future remains open. Um, so these things don't don't these are these these are hard to support. I know in Britain um there are a number of ships that now are being supported uh but i mean historically you know there's a lot of things that that have been lost and not preserved um what do you think when you when when you see these ships Phil? when um is is the situation is it is it worth saving these ships it's a lot of money a lot of people need a lot of money
2: when you see things like um the sullivans um you know, slowly sinking uh, at at her moorings, it's, it's just heartrending. It really is for, you know, for a marvelous, um, old historic ship. And as, as somebody who yeah, Kelsey sprees, um, yeah, has, it has a bit of a soft spot for historic ships. Let's let's be entirely honest here. Um, I'm coming at this from a slightly biased angle. Um, as we all are here. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think, I think I mean, good company here, but. Yeah, the the bottom line, uh, and I've, I've I've sort of had a measure of involvement with a couple of, uh, of warship preservation um, bits over here. It's it's not cheap, as you say, um, and, and particularly with things like um, COVID lockdowns and, uh, and you know, limitations on visitor, visitor numbers and things like that. They they are dependent on income. They're dependent on footfall. Um, and they, they desperately need a, a sort of stash of cash such that really sort of every 10 years or so they can be taken out, um, taken offline and put into a dry dock for, for serious repairs and maintenance. Um, I know mean the, uh, the Canadians do a marvelous little job with their little Corvette, uh, sack fill, mm-hmm. which you know, until, uh, some marvelous shots of her over winter in in one in one of the Canadian Navy's yards on the on the big li- ship lift and the rest of it, and it that is just so desperately needed by so many of these ships, and it's just not available. The, the funds aren't available. Um, there's there's no no shortage of of goodwill for for them half the time, but um, I and mean, particularly when you get to the bigger stuff like battleships. I mean, you're talking you know. What's the, the the bill on the uh, on the taxes? The hundreds of millions, isn't it? I mean, it's
0: it's, no, it's staggering amounts of cash. Not quite hundreds of millions, but it's a lot of money.
2: Yeah, it's, I mean, it really is um, an enormous you know, money pit, as, as somebody once described it to me. And yeah, we yeah, you know, um, in Britain, we have lost uh, and sunk uh, a number of uh, you know, wonderful. Famous warships. The uh the most famous one that everyone cites is the Warspite, of course, which was uh, scrapped along with so many others in that 1945-46-48 uh, period, uh, where just huge numbers of, of famous British warships were were scrapped. Likewise, a, a good few uh, American ones. I think it was uh, roughly the period you guys scrapped the uh, the old Enterprise at that point as well, isn't it? So.
0: Even the Falklands veteran, uh, the frigate Plymouth, which had a pretty stirring um experience in the Falklands War, was a museum ship for a while that but that failed and that then that ship is gone.
2: Sadly, so, um, it's yeah, they um, there were problems with that museum, there was a, a lack of uh, again, a lack of footfall, lack of uh. Care and tension, uh, lack of income, and in the end, it was uh, it was towed away. My my understanding of the matter is that uh, you know, broadly there was the uh, the enough cash kind of to knocking around to save either Plymouth or the the First World War veteran HMS Caroline. Um, and HMS Caroline, the uh, the Jutland veteran, got the money because um, they were both finding themselves in trouble at the same time um but yeah it's well that's one of the 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 harsh choices you have to make i mean that was part of a uh three or four ship um museum of which fortunately some of the others have have had rather better um you know rather better results there was a a u-boat up there that has just been taken on by the um Western Approaches Museum um, and that managed to, to survive although it's been sort of cut up into bits at the moment but um, I know the guys at Western Approaches I know they're going to do a damn good job with it um, there was a landing craft there that's now been taken on by the National Museum of the Royal Navy and has been restored as well so fortunately some of that museum had uh, had good outcomes yeah, tragically uh, Plymouth was lost.
0: Okay well Dr. Phil Weir, um, we're really grateful to have you on the show today. Uh, This has been really, you've had some great comments and great insights. Thank you for joining us.
2: My pleasure entirely. Now hear this. Now hear this.
0: All right, time for Squawk Box. And Mr. Cervello has some thoughts on the biggest warship to be sunk in 40 years.
1: This week's sinking of the Russian cruiser Moskva is the latest reminder that naval warfare is lethal and deadly. As we discussed in the last segment, the loss of the ship is not only significant in the context of the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, but should be mined by Western navies for lessons learned in today's era of great power competition. It's early, but it's hard not to wonder about the following. Why weren't the Russians better prepared for such an attack? What will be the PR or information value on both sides? Why did the ship sink during the transit? And what could have been done on the tug and salvage side to safely return the vessel to port? As Chris mentioned, this sinking was the first major warship sent to the bottom of the sea since the Falklands War in 1982. My guess is that it won't be the last in this conflict or in our competition with China. The United States and our allies must use what they can learn from this incident to better prepare for the offensive and defensive elements of such attacks. Waiting or relearning these lessons will be measured in opportunity missed and lives lost.
0: And it always seems that in warfare, as in life, basic lessons seem to have to be learned and relearned and relearned again. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Moradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support.
1: Be sure to follow us at Kavis Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello.
0: And I'm Chris Cavis Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. bye bye